Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Getting the chance to pray at uh, the Clark Family uh, fundraiser this past week uh, only stirred my affections for this community. God is on the move here in Humboldt, Iowa. You believe that? God is on the move. He is pursuing people in his love. He is calling people to himself. Even those who have grown up in the church, who have thought all along, I'm a Christian, and yet are far from him in their hearts. He is pursuing people. He is, by his spirit, wooing people to himself. Even those we have written off. Even those who we would think, there's no way, they're way too far from the grace of God. He is moving and he's pursuing people for his own glory. It's God's heart. Not only here in Humboldt, Iowa, but all over the world, he's doing this. We get to be a part of it. It's God's heart is what we're going to see today in the story of this woman named Rahab. So if you've got a Bible this morning, if you haven't already done so, open up to the sixth book of the Bible, uh, the book of Joshua. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up on the screen in back of me. And let me just try to recap where we left off last week. And so last week, we left off standing on the edge of the promised land. Right, so, so God's people, they're about ready to enter into the promised land, and yet these spies come back, 12 spies who were to report back to Moses and the rest of the congregation. They come back and they're fearful. They have seen this land. It is flowing with fruit and milk and honey, and yet there are big, giant people living in the land. And so they fear man more than they fear God. And so God gives them what they want. They don't get to go into the promised land. They're shut out, made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until their generation dies out. We pick up the story now, 40 years have passed, and here they are again, they're standing on the edge of the promised land on the doorstep of Canaan, and God has said, I'm going to give you this land. Moses has since died, and God has now commissioned Joshua, his successor, the leader of God's people, and said, I will be with you. I'm going to take this land, only be strong and courageous. Have courage, have faith, move out into this land. In chapter 1, verse 5, we see God say to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Some of you need to hear that today. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. In verse 13, he says this, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. That's a promise. I'm going to give you this land. He's repeating himself for emphasis. It's as if to say, I really mean it. I am on the move. I'm going to give you this land. Now, let me set the scene from there. 
In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So just like Moses, Joshua secretly sends out these spies to scout out the land, especially Jericho. Now, if you remember when you were a kid, the, the walled-in city of Jericho, this was an impressive sight to see. And so this was, the, this was the city that these two Israelites were being sent to. Notice here, only two spies are sent out, not 12. Perhaps Joshua had surmised that sometimes smaller committees are more effective than bigger ones. <laughs> No, that's not there in the Bible. Uh, that's just maybe from experience. But anyway, two come back, and they're to report back to him what they have found. And so as they come into the city of Jericho, the text says that they stay at the house of Rahab. Look at verse 1 again, the second part. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So we meet Rahab. Who is she? She's a Canaanite foreign woman. Probably grew up worshiping the Canaanite god, this moon god named Jerah, where we get the word Jericho. So she's a worshiper of false gods growing up in this foreign land. And it says here she's a harlot. She's a prostitute. And before we start to point the finger in judgment at her, we ought to feel sorry for her. Back in the year 2000, my wife and I, we went to Thailand uh, on a missions trip. And uh, we went there uh, to serve at an English camp, and we also served in, in China at an orphanage for a while. But while we were there in, in Bangkok, Thailand, one of the things we did is we walked the streets of this huge city. I mean, at night we were walking through, and the purpose for us walking through this, this uh, street was to pray over this city, for, for God to move in a mighty way. It was one of the darkest places I've ever been. And as we made our way through this, this street with so many people buying and selling and trading, there were actually prostitutes beckoning you into the brothels. So we, so we saw this up close, this, this dark and, and sad thing, and it just reminded me, no little girl grows up wanting to become a prostitute. No one. In this culture, sometimes it happened where the family, they needed to pay off a debt. They couldn't pay, so they had to sell one of their daughters into this slavery of prostitution to somehow pay back the family debt. We don't know if that's the case with Rahab. And yet she grew up, no doubt, used and abused, a social outcast in her community. And yet in the world's eyes, she was prosperous in her business, if you could call it that. After all, she had a prime spot on the wall in Jericho. This was her house built right into the wall. And you have to ask the question then, why did these Israelite men enter the house of a prostitute? Weren't you thinking about that as we read through this story here? Why did they go there? Well, it functioned somewhat like a, a tavern, kind of a, a meeting place uh, to pass through without being noticed. This was an ideal place for them to hide. Uh, nobody was going to ask them questions here at this place. They could remain inconspicuous while they continue to gather information about Jericho. 
But somehow, these spies were spotted. And word got back to the king, the king of Jericho. And so he sent emissaries out to discover where they were and to find them and bring them back. Look at verses 2 to 3. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. And so here we, we are faced with this question of how would Rahab respond? This was a very difficult situation. What would she do? How would she react? And we're going to walk through her story and just along the way make three simple points, which will lead us to one main point of application at the end. So here's the three as we make our way through the story. Number one, the lie she told, the lie she told. Number two, the risk she took, the risk she took. And then number three, the faith that she had. The lie she told, the risk she took, and the faith she had. So let's start with the lie she told. Look at verses four to seven. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark and the men went out, I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And so bottom line, when the king came looking for these spies, how did Rahab respond? She lied. She lied. And so the question comes, well, is this justifiable? Is this morally permissible? Is it ethical? Is it ever okay to lie? It's not an easy question to answer. The Bible never, let me just say this to begin with, the Bible never, ever presents an instance where lying is the right thing to do, okay? After all, the ninth commandment tells us, right, we should not bear false witness against one another. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says a lying tongue is an abomination, one of the seven abominations to the Lord. So God doesn't condone lying. But, but what about this story, Right? And we can look at another story in Exodus about these Hebrew midwives who lie to Pharaoh to save the lives of many babies. What do we do with that, right? Lying actually produced a good outcome. So was it justifiable? Was it morally permissible? Is, is it okay? Let me give you two approaches, two different perspectives on this, and you can wrestle with it yourself, all right? The one approach is, is this. Only in extreme Life-threatening situations, is it morally permissible to prevent a greater evil from happening? You think in times of war, like this one, in times of criminal assault, one commentator said deception is not always a lie. Are we always obligated to tell the full truth? That's one approach. Another approach says this, we have no need to justify her actions here. We don't have to excuse her for lying. God never commends her lies. And we could think about her life right now, and lying was probably her way of life, right? She, she we're going to see, is, is a brand new believer here, and, and it probably never occurred to her that this, this was wrong. We're not instantly sanctified, by the way. I'm just going to let you wrestle with that 
And I want to say this, this isn't really the main concern, though, of the story. God doesn't condone lying, but what he wants to emphasize here is the personal risk and faith it took for her to hide these spies. And so let's move from the lie that she told to the risk that she took, the risk that she took. Understand this, this was a very difficult decision that she was faced with. I mean, on the one hand, if she turned them over and sided with the king, she would be rewarded greatly. And yet if she, she hid the spies, she would be committing treason and would be executed immediately. So she had to think quickly on her feet. I mean, she acted shrewdly in the situation. In faith, she risked everything. She staked it all on the God of Israel. And understand, in doing this, she was stating that her loyalty was no longer with the king of Jericho, no longer with the Canaanite people, but was now solely with the God of Israel, the true God of Israel. That's where her allegiance was now to be. She put her life on the line for her Lord, and in so doing, she showed the reality of her faith. Her faith was evidenced by her actions before she had even expressed it in words. Isn't that interesting? So let's move from the lie she told and the risk she took to the faith that she had. Look at verses 8 to 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There's no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So, so, so she didn't have a lot of information to go on, right? But the little that she did hear, she believed. She believed. Notice in verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to these two kings of the Amorites. She had heard the stories of what the Lord had done for Israel, how he had rescued them from the Red Sea. Word was getting out. God was on the move. And he was coming now after anyone who would stand in his way. And so that made the Canaanites melt in fear. And yet what it did to Rahab is it melted her heart in faith. Fear gave way to faith in the true God of Israel. God did a deeper work in the heart of Rahab. And she came to believe that the Lord would give the land to his people. The God of Israel was on the move, and she wanted in. She wanted to be included in on that. Her faith bore the fruit of action. Listen to me. Faith always acts. In fact, faith is courage in action. We've seen it so far this summer, haven't we? The story of David. Everyone else was afraid. David saw God as bigger than Goliath. But he didn't just believe. He acted on that belief, and he took with him a simple slingshot and stones, and he defeated that Goliath. What about Esther? 
She knew that she couldn't approach the king without an invitation, and yet she came boldly. If I perish, I perish. I am acting on my faith. No matter what happens, courage to take steps forward. Daniel, given the edict from the king, hey, nobody can pray to to anyone except for me. But we see him acting on his faith, just as he had always done previously, and praying and seeking the true God in prayer. Faith always acts. And we see here in Rahab the same is true. In fact, in Hebrews 11.31, this, this hall of faith, so to speak, we're surprised. We might be shocked that she's actually part of this list. Verse 31, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so by faith, she's held up as a model of taking courage and acting on it. So God is on the move. He's on the move. He's he's taking this land, and Rahab believed in him, and so how was she going to escape? After all, you know this is coming in Joshua 6, this imminent destruction of Jericho. The walls are going to be coming, coming tumbling down, so what is she going to do to escape that? In verses 12 to 13, she proposes this deal. Look at that with me. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. By the way, side point here, if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you will have deep concern for your family. You will want them to know Jesus just like you know him. She wanted her family to be saved and rescued from this imminent destruction that was coming upon Jericho. Look at how the spies respond to her request in verse 14. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So we're going to deal kindly with you. We're going to spare you on one condition, not several conditions. Not when you get your life back in order and get it all cleaned up, but just one condition. Look at verse 18 and 19. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household, and if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So this one condition, tie the scarlet cord to your window. Reminds us of the Passover, right? If you were here for Good Friday service, we were remembering how uh, God told the people of Israel to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and God would pass over them. This is what's happening here in the story, the scarlet cord. It's symbolic. It's pointing to something greater. And sure enough, in Joshua chapter 6, as we'll see next week, the walls come tumbling down, but Rahab is kept safe. Her and her family are saved, so to speak, by the scarlet cord. Look at Joshua 6, 17. It says, in the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab. The prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 25 says, 
the same, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so, that's the story of Rahab. The lie she told, the risk she took, and the faith that she had. So, so what's the main point of application from this story? Here it is. One point in really three parts. God is on the move. God is on the move, and you can be included, you can be included if you take hold of Christ. God is on the move. You can be included if you take hold of Christ. And so number one, God is on the move. We see that in verses 8 through 11. There's this holy fear and awe of God that's coming upon the people in Canaan. This holy fear led to Rahab's heart melting in faith. By the way, this was all prophesied by God in the past in Exodus chapter 15. It says this in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. This is what happened as a result of the miraculous rescue through the Red Sea. And this is what happened in the early church as well. You may remember how God moved in a mighty way in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And my question is this. If it happened then, could it happen now? If it happened then, then why not now? That God would so move in our community, there would be a holy fear and awe of God that would come upon us. It struck me this uh, 4th of July, I was with a couple of my kids, one of mine was, was off with friends and our little one was with Jamie at home. I was with my, my two middle kids, and uh, we were getting ready to watch the fireworks. And uh, this was actually a picture that was taken the previous year, and just a little Harper's wonder in watching the fireworks. But here, this year, we were preparing for the fireworks to come. And maybe, maybe you were there too and you, you saw and you heard uh, just little fireworks go off, you know, and, and little uh, whistlers and I don't know what you call them, bottle rocket thingies. And they were making noise and they were kind of distracting. And then the, the final, you know, finally the, the, the actual fireworks display started up. And everybody's eyes were turned this way. But there were still some people that were doing their little fireworks kind of on the side, right? And distracting, a little bit dangerous. And yet it was a picture for me of what we're like, right? Man, we, we were made to be in awe of something that is huge, 
and glorious and for our eyes to be turned upward. And yet, we get so distracted, don't we, by competing things that are on the ground. It's like these little, little things, like on the ground, really? Like little fireworks when this is in the sky above us. We have an awesome God, guys. He is the king who has made us, who has spoken the world into existence, and we're like, ho-hum, and we're looking at stuff horizontally instead of seeing his greatness vertically. Guys, this is all gone wrong. It's in the wrong place. We have all in self and not in a holy God who loves us and made us and wants to bring us to himself. And it's seeping into the church. Man, we have lost our vertical focus. So many man-centered messages that make us feel good about ourselves when we need more than anything else a glorious picture of a great Savior that we can worship and be in awe of and bow before and be humbled by and delight in. And I'm praying for us as a community, and I invite you to pray this with me. Habakkuk chapter three, verse two, turn this into a prayer. Says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Would you renew them in our day, in our time? Would you make them known? In wrath, remember your mercy. So so the writer here is saying, I know you're, you're great. I stand in awe of your deeds, but in our day now, would you renew them so that we can see again afresh your greatness and your mercy and your love? We deserve wrath. Guys, every one of us individually, as a country, we deserve the judgment of God upon us for our sin. Are you praying for mercy, mercy, mercy to come from the hand of God, both here in Humboldt and all over the world. How does that happen? How does God revive us to remind us of how much we need him? Well, when God is on the move, people hear about what he's done, right? I mean, Rahab had heard bits and pieces about this Red Sea rescue and how these kings have been defeated. Word was getting out to her community. And I thought about this. We've got our own Red Sea stories, don't we? We've been delivered by something greater than the Red Sea. We've been delivered from the the wrath, the mighty wrath, the waters of God's wrath through Christ's death on the cross. That's something to be in awe of, and that's something to speak of. Rahab had heard so little, and yet she had heard the stories. She hadn't seen anything. Right? Some, sometimes we think, well, these Bible characters, they, they saw things, that's why they had faith. She hadn't seen a thing. She heard. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The only way we come to faith in Jesus is by hearing the gospel and we receive it by faith. Rahab had heard so little, these stories, and I think maybe for you, um, maybe you've heard these stories for a while now but you have yet to give your life over to King Jesus. This is also an encouragement for us to share our faith wherever we are in line at Hy-Vee. We're talking about this Savior and how he's transformed our our life. At the coffee shop, right? Over 
our hair getting done? Ladies. I don't know. I'm just coming up with different things. Are you in awe? Because you will speak about what you're in awe of. You will, won't you? You will speak about what you value. But even greater than the Red Sea, we have a message of Jesus and what he's done for us at the cross. And so we've got to participate in that. God is on the move, second part, and you can be included. You can be included. I want you to imagine this. God's looking over the city of ancient Jericho. And he's like bird's eye view, and he sees everyone. And you think, does God say, does, does God say this? Is this what he does? He, he looks over the whole city. He, he, he doesn't say this. Oh, look, there's one good woman that I'll choose to save. She is really a morally upright woman that I really want in my family. This is not God's heart. No, God looks over the city and he sees a lowly, broken prostitute and says, there she is. I want her. I want her in my family. That's his heart. He reaches down to the least likely and pours out his mercy. In James 2.25, we see Rahab as a model of faith and action, just like Abraham. One, a patriarch, another, a prostitute. Both were saved by faith and models of faith. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So I want to ask this question, why did James continue to identify her as Rahab the prostitute? Isn't that kind of mean? And you, you picture like Rahab years later saying, can we just drop that part of my uh, name now already? I mean, it's been like 25 years. I don't, we don't need that there anymore. I mean, would you like to have this title all your life? Maybe not Rahab the prostitute, but maybe Larry the liar or Chad the cheater, Dave the drinker. We could go on, right? But that doesn't seem very nice. After all, she's a new person. She's got a new identity, a new story. So why did that title stay with her? Listen to this. I think it's to remind us that who you once were magnifies the transforming work of God's grace. Who you once were magnifies the transforming work of God's grace. It not only magnifies his grace, it makes a bridge into the lives of others who feel like they've been written off too. It's the heart of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy for this reason. Notice that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And so, the story of Rahab is here. To make sure that everyone knows without a shadow of a doubt, you can be included. You're not too far from God's grace. You're never beyond his reach. And yet sometimes, guys, we have the tendency to just write people off, don't we? We write people off instead of welcome them in. Don't write people off. Welcome them in with the welcoming heart of God. Let me ask you this. What would you do if Rahab 
showed up here on a Sunday morning. Is there room for Rahab here at Oak Hill Church? She had three strikes against her. She was a woman, a foreigner, and a harlot. Let's make this into contemporary terms at the risk of maybe offending someone here in this room. Someone comes in, coming from a different country, different background culturally. Same sex attraction, lesbian, homosexual. Feeling broken at the end of the rope. Have we written them off? Is there room for Rahab? God has a heart for those who are on the outside. He wanted her. In fact, she ends up marrying an Israelite man named Salmon. Perhaps he was one of the spies, I like to think so. Not sure. And so she becomes, get this, Rahab becomes the great, great, great grandmother of King David was in the line of King Jesus. In Matthew 1, 5 to 6, I love this, how she's included in the genealogy. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. In the line of Jesus himself, that ought to scream at you the truth, that if she can be included, I can be included too. So can my family members, so can my friends, and so can the ones I've completely written off. God is on the move, and you can be included. Last part, if you take hold of Christ. If you take hold of Christ. Look at Joshua 2.18 again. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And so I, I love this imagery of the scarlet cord. The, the red rope. This was the one condition, right? She didn't have to go and clean herself up first. One thing you need to do, tie this scarlet cord to your window. Tie it on your window in faith, knowing that if you and your family are inside and this Jericho and all of its walls are going to come down if you are in and the cord is hanging outside your window, you'll be safe. You'll be saved. So I'm speeding ahead to next week, but try to imagine the scene in Joshua chapter 6, right? You remember the story, right? They circle around the city, march around the city, seven Days and the seventh day for seven times, and then they blow the trumpets and they shout, right? And all the walls come tumbling down, and, and then everybody is destroyed, everything and everyone except for Rahab and her family. And I'm kind of using my imagination here, but I'm picturing everything around them in ruins. And when the dust clears, you see this red rope kind of dangling outside the window, and on the other end is, is Rahab holding on, clinging to the scarlet cord. Not trusting in the rope itself, but what it represents. The one who would rescue her and save her.
by his scarlet blood. So today, God is on the move, and he's still saving people just like Rahab, and you can be included. One condition, if you take hold of Jesus Christ. If you, like Rahab, know that you cannot do anything to earn God's favor, and you just come to him with your sin and brokenness and hold on to Christ and his promises, you can be saved. He is on the move. You can be included if you take hold of Christ. No matter who you are or what you've done, God has come for you. If there's room for Rahab, there's room for you too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It's an uh, incredible story that magnifies your grace we don't deserve it. We deserve to be judged just like the city of Jericho for our sin. And yet we want to be like Rahab in faith, fleeing to you and holding on to the promise of Jesus and his blood that was shed for us on the cross and how he was raised to new life. God, help us. Help us to trust in you and help us to join with you as you are on the move here in this community and bringing more and more people to yourself. We pray in Christ's name, amen.